You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Amen. Well, the day has come, brothers and sisters, our very last sermon in the book of Hebrews. Our text this morning is this incredible book's conclusion. But don't let that word conclusion fool you. What we have here before us is not a a conclusion like the one we might uh, be more accustomed to, which is simply just a reiteration of all the points you already went over just for the second time. No, but we have here at the end of this letter, at the conclusion of Hebrews, is our author yet pushing us onward, further into the margins of our care for one another, and deeper into the realities of the God whom we worship. Of the three main points for the sermon this morning, the first will correspond to that former part, our care for one another. Points two and three with that latter, the deep realities of our God. Here's the three points. Our prayer for one another. God's power and Jesus' unique glory. Our prayer for one another, God's power and Jesus' unique glory. So first point, prayer. You'll note at verse 18, our text opens up with the entreaty, pray for us. And I think one litmus test for us this morning of how deep the realities of Hebrews have permeated into our souls is how we react to those three words. Pray for us. For example, when you hear pray for us, you may think, why pray? I mean, would the God of the universe really hear me? I'm no writer to the Hebrews. I'm no Apostle Paul. I'm just a standard, run-of-the-mill Christian. Would God really hear me when I pray to him? Hebrews would reply, brother, sister, if you are a Christian, and how could God not hear you when you pray? So recall how Hebrews has labored all throughout this letter to show that to be a Christian is to be one who is intensely near to God. That's who you are. One who recognizes that there's a better hope that's been introduced through which we draw near to God. That's Hebrews 7, 19. As one who believes that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. Chapter 7, verse 25. One who has confidence to enter. Not stay outside, not yell from out, but enter Enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, chapter 10, 19. One who, because you have a great high priest over the house of God, should draw near, not timidly, not full of shame, but draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, chapter 10, verse 21. What is a Christian? A Christian is one who with confidence can and should draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Do you pray as one dialing up a long-distance phone call? 
Hope that somehow, some way, God who's way out there, separated millions of miles from you, might somehow eventually get your message. Is that how you pray? Is that, you picture, is that how you picture God when you pray? If you're a Christian and you've been listening to this book, you should recognize that you live all of your days, morning, noon, and night, at work and at home, in good times and bad times, you live all of your life before the face of God. So when we hear the writer's request to pray, pray for us, or when someone else asks us, hey, pray for me, we should think, of course you're going to ask me to pray for you. I'm a Christian. When I pray, I pray with God in the room. How could he not hear me? But you may read, pray for us, and think something else. You might think, why pray? It's not like it's my responsibility to pray for someone else. Well, Hebrews would say, actually, brothers and sisters, one another's spiritual good is your responsibility. It is my responsibility. Not responsibility in the sense of control. I mean, we can't manage or manufacture one another's spiritual good, but it is our responsibility, our role, our calling, our office, you could say, to work toward and put effort toward our brothers and sisters' spiritual good. Hence the exhortations. Exhort one another every day. Stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Or perhaps most emphatically, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And now, pray for us. It's no mere preface to this paragraph for us to gloss over but a real live call to action, to work and labor for the good of your brothers and sisters in the faith through prayer. You might read, pray for us, and think, why pray? Isn't that a bit too menial of a task? A bit too simple, a bit too basic. I mean, give me something more challenging to do, more, something that uses my gifts just a little bit more. Why do something so simple and plain as prayer? Hebrews might ask, have you missed my description of what Jesus, your great high priest, has been doing for the sake of his people for the past 2,000 years? Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus prays for his people. In fact, that's what Jesus is doing for you and for me right now before his father. He is praying for us. And Hebrews, when he says pray for us, he, and this should blow our minds, He invites us to join Jesus in his prayer ministry for his church. We get to pray with the same names upon our lips that Jesus has upon his in heaven as he prays. Last thing in regard to prayer, you might think, why pray? It's not like it's actually going to change anything. Hebrews would say, verse 19 of today's text, 
I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Do you hear the urgency in those words? I urge you the more earnestly to do this. Like, I'm really asking you to do this. I'm really expecting it of you. You've got to pray for us. He's so after their prayer, in fact, that he even gives personal testimony saying, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things, lest, for some reason, any doubt show up into their minds as to their motives and think, I'm not going to pray for them. So he says and urges, pray for us. Well, that would be quite a ridiculous thing to ask, wouldn't it, if prayer changed nothing. But he goes even further. He says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Sooner. Do you see it? Like, listen, my current location will change. And the time of my arrival will change. Things will move into motion. Events will fall like dominoes. I'll be restored to you sooner if you pray for us. Implication, if you don't pray for us, well, then it might not. Interestingly, he seems very confident that these Hebrews will respond. Look in uh, our little hint in verse 23. He says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. In other words, since I know that through your prayers, I will be restored to you sooner, and Timothy better get here, because I'm taken off shortly. So first point, we should be awed, we should be shocked by the blessing and honor and gift and responsibility that we have as Christians to pray. Second point, God's power. We want to pray in light of God's power. So Hebrews follows his exhortation to to his readers to pray for him more earnestly with his own prayer in the form of a benediction, verses 20 and 21. And very prominent, if you notice, in this benediction, certainly anchoring and supporting his prayer is the unparalleled power of God. God's power has already been implied. I mean, verse 19, note the passive language. He doesn't say, I'll go to you sooner. He says, I'll be restored to you sooner. If it's going to happen, it's going to be God carrying me there. God's power will be called upon later in verse 21. It is God who will equip them with everything good and work in them that which is pleasing. So God's God's power kind of moves throughout this whole thing. But nowhere is God's power more plainly evident than in verse 20. God's raising of Jesus from the dead. The wording here, interestingly enough, It doesn't seem to emphasize the new life to which Jesus was raised to. Rather, it seems to emphasize the death 
at which he was taken out from. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. So death and the fact that the same Jesus who went into it was taken up out from it, that's what's in view. God's power, look here. In order to grasp just how the bringing of Jesus out of the death shows us God's power, we need to begin by asking, what is death? If it's a powerful thing for God to show us, he takes his son out of death, what even is death? Well, death is the pitiless wall between man and everyone of God's promises. Death is the dividing line between man and everlasting joy and peace and life. Death is the chasm of darkness that swallows sinners whole daily. Death is the final ticking of the clock, the game over moment, the snuffing out of one's hope, happiness, and wholeness. Death is the thing that we all naturally fear. Death is the thing we are all born into. Death is the thing that we all deserve. Even more, death, if it were to be the end for Christians would render our preaching in vain, our faith in vain, and prove that we are still hopelessly lost in our sin, and of all people most to be pitied. Death is a big deal. As it is, we are not hopelessly lost in our sin, and death has not rendered our faith in vain because Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus, through death, destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And Jesus has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For the Christian, death is actually dead and buried. For the Christian, death has actually breathed its last. Death has been swallowed up in victory and been robbed of its sting because it was, after all, in Jesus' death that God canceled our record of debt, stood against us with its legal demands, nailing them all, every last one of them, to the cross. It was in Jesus' death that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What's the proof of all this? What's the proof that death doesn't have a hold on us? The proof that we have freedom and that we have victory over death. The thing that which so enslaved us, so shackled us, and so shackles so many people outside of these walls. What's the proof? The proof is in a Messiah who breathes three days after his own death. That's the proof. Hebrews, aiming throughout this letter to instill in his brothers and sisters a confidence in God. Confidence that God can keep his promises. 
Confidence that God can keep his people. Confidence that God can equip his people with all that they need. Work in them that which is pleasing to him. And both hear and answer their prayers. Hebrews, trying to work that confidence into his hearers, says, Allow me for a moment to remind you of who bound the hands of the greatest enemy the world has ever known. How powerful is God? God, your God, is powerful enough to conquer the grave. And he's good enough to conquer the grave for the good of his people. Now, I think it's fair to say we don't often associate power with peace, do we? We we associate power with destruction, Power with violence. Power is a bad thing. I'm saying God is powerful. See, our God, verse 20, is the God of peace. See that title, very beginning of verse 20? The God of peace. The reason he is the God of peace is because he is the God of ultimate power who puts his power to work for the good of his people to bring them peace with him and then flowing downstream from that peace with him, a peace with self, a growing peace with others, a growing peace with the world, and a final peace, a final rest in heaven. Colossians 1.20, God, through Jesus, reconciled to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. For that reason, we call it Ephesians 6, the gospel of peace. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God puts his power to work for you? You're not running on your own strength in this Christian life. That's not all up to you. In fact, it never was. But that is instead God, the God who conquered the grave, who equips you, verse 21, with everything good that you may do his will. See, just look at this verse. It's his power without limit that equips you. And it is his will, the very thing he he wants you to do. It's what he finds pleasing that he is pushing you toward with hands to which no one can say, stop. If the grave could not stop him, why would something as simple as equipping you for everything that he already desires for you to do and be in this life? So, brother, let me ask you this. Will God require a vacation in a season where you most need him near? Sister, Will God suffer exhaustion and need rest when you most need his strength? Church, will there ever, ever, ever come a day when you say, Lord, I need more faith. I need more hope. I need more strength. I need more love. And I have not. It's got to come from you. And him say, you know, You asked me for these things last week, and I gave them to you. But this week, 
I'm tired. I'm taking the week off. I need to revive just a bit. We might feel that way when others ask us of things, but God does not. His power never wavers. And if you question if it ever wavers, the person you should ask is the grave. Does God's power ever run out? Ask the grave. So pray. Pray in light of God's power and run the Christian life in the power that God provides. And then final point, marvel all the while you run at the unique glory of Jesus. Just turn to the description we get of Jesus here in verse 20. It's not one we would expect coming on the tail end of this book. It says, Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. We would expect it to say, Our Lord Jesus, the great high priest. At the very end of the letter, he's just about to sign off here. The whole thing has focused on Jesus as priest. Hebrews leaves us with Jesus is your shepherd. Your great shepherd, in fact. It's imagery that kind of shifts the focus a bit from where we've been. We've been so dialed in on the temple, the priests, the sacrifices there, but then shepherd of the sheep comes in, kind of bumps the lens a bit, kind of zooms it out further past the temple and into the sprawling hills beyond. And there the lens seems to focus in on the pasture land in which we find a group of sheep. And this group of sheep is traveling together. They're not wandering about and changing direction. They're moving forward. This group of sheep is not headed toward arid ground, but luscious green grass. These sheep are not walking in crippling fear, but contented peace. They're sheep. They're not known for consensus. They're not known for intelligence. They're certainly not known for bravery. And yet these sheep seem to have all three. Why? Because as you look through this lens, seen most clearly in the frame is the fact that these sheep have a great shepherd. But what's the connection to this book in its entirety? Why the transition from Jesus as great high priest to Jesus, the very end, great shepherd? Consider, two of the major themes of this book, Jesus as great high priest, who's offered the better sacrifice and has now sat down on the throne beside his father. That's one over here, Jesus as priest. Another theme is Jesus' people over here. Jesus' people bound for a greater country, a better city, a lasting one with foundations. A people who need to keep moving forward. The first, over here, Jesus as priest, happens at a very fixed point on the map, we could say. The true temple in heaven. The second is a picture of that moves. It's a journey. The journey of Jesus' people doesn't happen at a fixed point. It moves as it progresses toward glory. 
Well, I think Hebrews leaves us with this image of the great shepherd. Jesus says the great shepherd to say this. Jesus is your great high priest who's finished the work on behalf of his people and he has sat down on his throne. That's true. And don't forget, Jesus is also the great shepherd who now continues to lead his people onward as they travel toward that very throne. He, in a picture, Jesus sits down on his throne and wraps his arm around his people as a shepherd and pulls them in. That's the journey of the Christian life. The book ends with God's people bound for glory, led on by their great shepherd. Now, as God's people travel on, we've said they look to their shepherd. They keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. And as they look towards Jesus, what do they see? It's our very last point for today. What do, what do God's people see as they are led on by the shepherd and they keep their eyes fixed upon him? What does he look like to them as they travel? Well, you see that little phrase at the very end of verse 20? By the blood of the eternal covenant? Where does that phrase connect to? Are we to read by the blood as referring to the how the God of peace brought Jesus back from the dead. Like, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So that's the means by which God raised Jesus. That's how some commentators suggest we read it. I think that that is a bit strange. All throughout this book, the point of Jesus' blood overwhelmingly has been that it is for his people. He bleeds for them. That's who the blood is for. In fact, Hebrews notes this as an area of contrast between Jesus and the high priests who are in Jerusalem, saying, the high priests go into the most holy place but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself as well as for his people. That's set in contrast to Jesus, who offers his blood purely for his own people. So it seems strange at the very end that Hebrews would make this point that Jesus' blood is what allowed him to rise up from the grave as well. Well, a second suggestion is this. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by virtue of the blood of the eternal covenant. So Jesus became great shepherd by virtue of the blood that he spilled. That's how he inherited that title. That one makes a little bit more sense to me. After all, he is the shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. He bleeds for the sheep. But could there be more? Now, if I've lost you, I want, I want to ask that you buckle in here, tune in here to the very last image we will get, I think we get, at the end of this book. Could there be more? Could Hebrews, at the very end of this letter, which has been so riveted upon the glories of Jesus, be doing something other than noting the mechanics of either how Jesus raised up from the grave or how Jesus inherited the title Great Shepherd? 
Here's what I want to suggest to you is the final image of Jesus that we get at the close of this book. I was greatly helped by Pastor David Mathis in working through this. He noted that the literal rendering of this passage in Greek would read, May the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the shepherd of the sheep, the great one in the blood of the eternal covenant, the Lord of us, Jesus. Hear that? The great one, referencing Jesus, the great one in the blood of the eternal covenant. Jesus is in the blood. So I don't think the focus here is on the mechanics of Jesus' resurrection or his becoming shepherd. I think the focus is on the glory of Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, who as his sheep look to him on their journey, worn out, scared, tired as they can be. They look up and see their shepherd. They fix their eyes upon him, and they see him adorned in the blood of the eternal covenant, venerated by it, celebrated by it, glorified by it. That's the vision that they see of Jesus. They see him adorned in the blood of victory, not defeat, cloaked in the symbol of battle won, not lost, arrayed in the proof of power possessed, authority shown and glory made clear. The blood adorns him in awesome splendor. The great one in the blood, which dismantled death, defeated Satan, and paid for our sins in full. That is the vision of Jesus that they see. What an encouraging reminder for the sheep to look up and see the very blood by which their souls were bought. What a cause for them to bow once more before their great shepherd. And what an image, what a picture to leave us with at the close of such a glorious letter. The great one in the blood. As the hymn writes, Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side, rich wounds, yet visible above in beauty glorified. So that blood, Jesus' blood, is what now brings us to this table. Here we bask in the presence of our great shepherd and we receive freely from his hand a meal which anticipates a better meal which he is bringing us to. It's a meal that celebrates Jesus, his blood spilled in death, the very, de- the very blood that dismantled death and the grave. And so, brothers and sisters, if you recognize this blood as a symbol of Jesus' victory, and the means by which you have been reconciled to God. We invite you to eat and to drink with us. I'll invite the pastors to come forward. We'll distribute the bread first. It's all gluten-free. You'll take it, we'll retain it, and then we'll eat together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.